0: This episode of Never Not Knitting is brought to you by Alpenglow Yarn, Glowing Natural Color. Find out more at www.alpenglowyarn.com. Hi, this is Alana, and you're listening to the Never Knot Knitting Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 56 of Never Not Knitting. Thank you for joining me. I have what I believe to be an exciting, action-packed episode in store for you today, but first I'd like to start out, as always, by announcing the winner of last episode's drawing giveaway. Everyone who left a comment under the drawing blog post for episode 55 was entered to win the signed copy of Math for Hats by Kate Oates, along with two of her Tot Toppers t-shirts and lip balm. I chose a commenter at random using the online random number generator, and I'm happy to announce that the winner is Grandma Status. Congratulations. Thank you to everyone who participated. And to the winner, when you hear this, please contact me right away at knitting at gmail.com to claim your prize and also so that I can get your shipping information and get this sent right on out to you. Okay, on to today's show. Wow, to tell you the truth, I'm not quite sure where to begin here. It feels like I went from having absolutely nothing to talk about in the last episode to way too much to talk about in this one. As you know, there's been many projects I've been working on, with details that I've been vaguely alluding to for quite some time. But now that everything is in its final stages, I'm ready to finally tell you all about it. You already know I've been working hard designing a new collection of patterns. What you don't know, however, is that this is far more than just a collection. It's actually a book. Yes. Since January, I've been working behind the scenes with my friend and fellow designer, Hannah Fettig, on a collaborative book project called Coastal Knits. As many of you know already, I live on the west coast of the United States in the Central California area and Hannah lives on the East Coast in Portland, Maine. So each of us has decided to put together five designs based on our favorite locations from our individual coastal regions. It's a merging of our two design styles and two coastlines in one publication. It's a very inspiration-driven collection of patterns, and also very personal because it offers a little glimpse into our lives outside of the internet. We have a nice selection of patterns offered in the book. Inside you'll find five sweater patterns and five accessories, ranging from quick and easy to complex. And I am really, really excited about these new designs. I'm just thrilled by how everything turned out. Both Hannah and I will be revealing the pattern pictures on our blogs within the next few days, so please come and visit and check it out for yourself. If you've been listening to this podcast regularly or for some time now, you're sure to know Hannah. She's been on the podcast twice the first time on episode 4 with my first designer interview, and then again on episode 47 when she shared a knitting story. She is a very accomplished designer and has some amazing sweater patterns available that she is very well known for. Some of them you've probably heard of. She's designed the Whisper Cardigan, the Featherweight Cardigan, and one of her newer popular sweaters is the Effortless Cardigan. Additionally, her work has been featured in several well-known knitting magazines. She's already published a book, and also she has her own pattern line, like I do, under the name of KnitBot. So basically, what I'm trying to say is she's the real deal in the design world, and it's been a pleasure for me to be able to work with her on this collaboration. The funny part about this, though, is that although we're friends, and both knitwear designers, we really do have a completely different design style. Her designs and actual patterns tend to have simple, modern lines, and I tend to want to embellish and overcomplicate everything that I touch. We really do have a different design aesthetic But at the same time we do appreciate each other's style. Because of these differences, in the beginning planning stages of Coastal Knits, we wondered how all of this would work, featuring both differing styles in the pages of one book. But now that we're practically done, it really does work. Surprisingly well, actually. I'm really happy with how well our styles complement each other and it's really nice to not have everything look the same. The book offers some really good variety, and I really feel that our design styles came through really well in our individual patterns. I think just by looking at the pattern, you'll be able to see, oh, Alana designed this one. Oh, that pattern looks just like something Hannah would do. I'm so happy with it. I just can't wait to show you guys everything. It's been a long work in progress, and it's just been hard keeping this secret from everyone. So like I said, you can check out our pattern previews that we'll be posting on our blogs within the next few days, and you all know my blog address by now, nevernotknitting.com, and you can find Hannah's blog at knitbot.com. If everything goes as planned, we'll be starting to take pre-orders for Coastal Knits during September, and we expect the book to be released in October. I, of course, will provide you with all the details as those dates draw closer. I'm super excited about this project, and I hope that you all really, really enjoy it. So besides, you know, writing a book, starting the third trimester of pregnancy, being a wife, a mother, and running a full-time pattern business out of my home, I've also been doing a ton of knitting. After I finished the last piece for the book about a week and a half ago, I went into a knitting frenzy and started knitting things for our new baby at an alarming rate. And this is unusual because after working on a big design project with deadlines, it's very common for designers to get into a little knitting slump. In fact, there were times when I was working on the book projects when I would be fantasizing about being done with it all and how I was going to reward myself by not knitting for a week just to recharge. But turns out, I didn't need to do that at all. Being able to knit adorable tiny baby items from other people's patterns was relaxing enough for me. It's something that I've wanted to indulge in ever since I found out I was pregnant and now I finally have the chance. And I tell you, It has been a while since I've been this happy while knitting. I feel like I can't get enough. I just sit in my big living room chair, churning out all of these adorable baby items in complete contentment. I feel like, in doing so, I'm finally preparing for our new arrival. And it's really fun getting to think about the baby while I'm knitting and thinking about the baby wearing the items and it's just gotten me really really excited to have this new little person joining our family so in the past week or so i've completed a baby sweater with a matching hat i've knit the second baby sock and second baby booty to finish the pairs that i started before and i'm almost done with a second baby hat as well and truthfully i've enjoyed every last stitch i would like to tell you more now About all of these projects and the yarns that I chose but I think that I'll save that for next time because otherwise this episode would end up to be quite lengthy. I will start sharing pictures of all the baby knits on my blog this week sometime however if you'd like to check them out. Probably by the next time I record I'll have a whole number of finished baby knits to add to the list because seriously I am one happy productive knitter right now. So, now that you finally know about Coastal Knits and the concept behind it, it will make sense to you why I focused on independent California yarn companies for three of my five design projects. We figured that as long as our designs are based on local regions, it would be only fitting to use yarns from our areas where we could. One very local company that I went with for one of my projects is Glow Yarn. Alpenglow is a small yarn company that focuses on natural dyes and supporting American farming. I originally met the owner, Carrie Sundra, around six years ago through the yarn shop I used to work at when she walked in through the door for one of my Learn to Knit classes. I find it interesting and really cool how six years later, we're both heavily involved in the industry, but in completely different ways. And it was really fun for me to work with Carrie on this project, because I really enjoy what her company is all about, and I think she has done a great job with it. Alpenglow features a few different lines, the Small Farm Yarn and Fiber line, the American Yarn line, and Global Yarn. Her Global Yarn includes specially selected pre-made yarns from around the world, including some really nice luxury blends. The American Yarn category features yarn from American mills only. And the Small Farm Yarn line is my favorite because it's made from fleeces collected from small farms in our local region. All Alpenglow yarns are also dyed by Carrie herself, making them extra special. The thing that I love most about her products, though, are their labels. Carrie writes up the story behind each skein of yarn. She tells where the wool comes from, how it's processed. It's really interesting, and it's so neat to see the time and attention that Carrie puts into each skein, and how much she values the history of each product. For the Coastal Knits pattern, I chose to work with her Big Fat Alpaca Yarn, which is a natural, undyed, bulky alpaca that was grown and processed locally. The label even has the names of the alpacas that the wool was taken from, which I think is so cool. For me, it wasn't like working with just any commercial yarn. This yarn felt authentic and real, with soul and a story. It was wonderful to work with, and it really made me feel connected to our local area. I felt like it couldn't have fit in more perfectly with our concept for Coastal Knits. As this episode's sponsor, Carrie has kindly provided a few surprises for you listening. If Alpenglow sounds like a yarn you'd be interested in trying, Carrie has kindly offered a special discount code for you to use through the end of September for all Alpenglow products off of her website, www.alpenglowyarn.com. All you need to do is just enter the code NNK2011 in the checkout process. receive your discount. So please be sure to stop by and take a look. For another surprise, I do have a new knitting story to share with you for this episode, but this time it's from Carrie herself. This is her personal story about how she became involved in the yarn industry and just what it takes to turn a fleece into a skein of ready-to-knit yarn. I'm happy to present her story, Micro Brewed Yarn.
1: 18 cents a pound? I asked grandma, simply incredulous. The Pronsolinos had waited eight months to be paid for their clip of Corradale fleece. The price of wool wasn't very good that year, just a little over a dollar a pound. But Roswell had nickel and dimed them so much, even listing charges for advertising that 18 cents is what they were left with. It was ridiculous and insulting. It didn't even cover the cost of shearing. I didn't know much about wool back then. I had just learned basic spinning on a CD-style drop spindle. But I had also just picked up two pounds of their wool that Sherry at Moro Fleece Works had turned into beautiful white roving. And the sum total of my thoughts were, I'd buy that roving. So, four months later, I was in the middle of barely controlled chaos. It was hot my arms were sticky from lanolin. The barn was so dim that it hurt to look at the light outside, but it was good to be out of the bright sun. The buzzing from the electric shears in such a small space rang loud in my ears and so did the arguing of Grandpa and Uncle Dave as they tried to wrangle sheep into the barn. Two guys from New Zealand were bent over at the waist manhandling the sheep into submission while a dozen more sheep were backed into the corner and looking on with abject terror. The shearers were Fast, One of them actually held a speed record, and fleece was flying at me about one every five minutes. It was my first time at shearing day, and I had no idea what I was getting into. I made my choices as quickly and best as I could. The fleece I didn't pick went straight into the hydraulic baler where it was compressed into a giant mass of wool. Above us was an old wooden platform with a hole cut in it. Back in the day, a sack was hung from the hole and some unlucky kid would have to climb in the sack and jump up and down on the fleece to compress it. I looked at that and thought, yay for technology. So we were bent over on the floor, skirting each fleece as it came off on a large plastic sheet laid on the dirt. It was hard dirty work, literally tearing chunks of poop and nasty coarse butt and side wool off the edges of the fleece. We only had time for a rudimentary job, and if you took too much off, Grandpa would give you that look that said, you're wasting money. They're paid by the pound, so clean or dirty makes little difference. And, you know, I'm not sure why we were on the ground and not using tables, other than the simple fact that there had never been tables before. With old farmers, you quickly learn that most times the reason for doing something a certain way is because we've always done it that way. Grandpa's 89 and still raises about 100 head of corredale so he can pretty much do things however he wants. But next year, I thought, I'm bringing a table. The whole thing was over in about four hours, and the clean, white, naked sheep were back in the pastures. I bought enough fleece that day that Grandma and Grandpa were able to cover the cost of shearing and still have a profit. Plus, they still had half of their clip that I passed on to sell in the general pool, but decidedly to a different buyer that year. I was tired, but I felt really good. I learned a lot about fleece that day and even more afterwards. It still needed quite a bit of skirting, and I had about 35 fleeces to go through. So I did what any enterprising yarn producer would do and invited a dozen or so of my best knitter friends, plus my mom, over for a poop pickin' party. Barbecue, beer, and sheep poo. What could be better? None of them really knew what they were getting into either but the opportunity of getting to handle raw fleece was just too tempting for them to pass up thankfully we skirted about half the fleece that day and some people amazingly even came back the next week for poop and party part two so a few days after that i loaded the fleece into the car and drove down to ranch of the oaks in lompok where it would be transformed from dirty fleece into squishy yarn Tom and Meta had graciously allowed me to be their mill slave for a few days, so I would have a better understanding of the process. First the fleece is washed and spread out onto racks to dry for a few days. Then it goes through the picker, which is a machine with long, wicked-looking spikes on its rollers. These spikes open up all the locks, and in the room on the other end floats the most amazingly fluffy, wonderful cloud of fiber that you've ever seen in your life. Um, so Meta told me to take the fiber and put it in a bin and I was pretty excited by this giant cloud of fluff and so I just kind of like grabbed this huge handful and like turned around real quick and I was about to shove it into the bin and just as Meta was yelling GENTLY! And it was totally too late, fiber just exploded everywhere, covered the two of us, <laughs> and I kind of had this moment of panic and shock and horror like, oh man, I I just really messed this up, but then the giggles set in because the two of us were just like coated with wool. So anyway, I'm really glad that um, Meta has a sense of humor about these things. (laughs) So the process is that you put the fiber gently into the bin and then it's conditioned with some anti-static spray and you kind of, you know, kind of tear it into chunks and mix it all up and then you feed it into the fiber separator. And the fiber separator not only separates out the shortcuts from shearing, but also a lot of the VM, the vegetable matter. And so on the other side, this kind of waterfall of fiber kind of flows out of the end of the machine into this other bin below. And that fiber then goes through the carter. The carter is the biggest machine and it's where the serious business happens. A few ounces at a time are weighed out, and carefully and evenly spread onto the feeding belt. It then goes through about six pairs of rollers which create this cohesive sheet of fiber, which then goes through a funnel and adds a slight bit of twist and creates this continuous strip of roving. The roving then has to go through one more process, which is the drafting frame. Since the carter is hand-fed, the roving straight off the carter will have thinner and thicker spots. So at the drafting frame, Two or more strips of roving are combined together and drafted, which means that they're pulled apart slightly. And by combining these strips of roving, the thin and thick spots tend to average out into a more even width. This is important because the next step is spinning, and the spinning frame drafts a fixed amount, so it can't adjust for thin and thick spots in the roving like a person could. The spinning frame itself is—it's just kind of magic. Roving goes in and yarn comes out, and it comes out at this just dizzying, amazing rate. It just piles onto the bobbins. It's pretty cool. And then when your bobbins are full, then they go to the plying frame, where two or more strands are plied, twisted together in the opposite direction. The yarn then gets shot through this cannon-like steamer in order to set the twist, and is wound onto a cone. And then individual skeins can be wound from the cones using a skein winder. And then, are you tired yet? This is kind of a lot of work, huh? Okay, so then it's finally ready for me to pick up and wash and dye. So, six months later, I'm armed with a dozen or so cones of creamy corridor yarn. It's still a slightly beige color, there's residual oil from the anti-static spray, and usually still like a little bit of dirt trapped in the fiber. And plus it's been stretched out from being wound under tension onto the cone, so the yarn kind of feels a little stiff. But then you wash it, and it becomes this completely different yarn. It transforms into clean, white, and incredibly lofty and springy. And this is really the first point that I get a good feel for the yarn's character. Then I can start to estimate its size, decide how big and long I want the finished skeins to be, Knit some swatches in order to figure out the gauge. I wind the yarn into these big dye hanks. And then the real fun begins. I use natural dyes, which is really a whole other process and worth its own story. As you can probably tell by now, I like doing things from scratch, and dyeing is no exception. I use raw dye stuffs whenever I can instead of extracts. Which means I actually boil up leaves, wood chips, or even bugs to create the color. I'm even growing some dye plants from seeds, and I hope to eventually be able to grow a good portion of my own dyes. It's like baking your own bread or brewing your own beer. More work, but you get to control what happens at each point in the process. And the result for me is bright, vivid, glowing, natural color. And there you have it, microbrewed yarn from grandpa's flock to your needle's hook, or shuttle. It's a lot of work for sure. Frankly, it's probably four times the amount of work for four times less pay than I got as an engineer. But it's incredibly rewarding, and that's what ultimately motivates me and makes me really happy. I love working with farms, I love working outside, and I love creating color from scratch. Going to shows and being able to share my yarn with knitters, who are always so appreciative of color and texture, is just the best part. I would never have predicted that I'd be a yarn maker and a yarn dyer, especially 15 years ago when I was in the middle of engineering school. But you know, strange things happen after you walk into a yarn store, and a blonde-haired woman named Alana teaches you how to knit.
0: Thank you so much, Carrie, for sharing your story with us. I don't know about everyone else, but I sure have a renewed appreciation for my yarn, knowing what a lengthy process it has gone through. It's way more involved than I ever knew. For you listening, you'll be excited to know that Carrie has also provided a very generous Alpenglow giveaway for you to enter to win. Included in the prize is a 100-gram package of undyed Corydell wool roving that she talked about in the story, along with two skeins of yarn from each of her three yarn lines. Small Farm, American, and Global Yarn. This is a really awesome prize, so please be sure to stop by my blog to enter to win. As always, I'll be posting all of the drawing details within the next few days. Also, I do have one more unrelated drawing to announce. You may have heard already about VK Live. It's a three-day fiber event with knitting classes, a fiber marketplace, and fashion shows put on by Vogue Knitting. The first event was held in January in New York, and now it's coming to Los Angeles, California, on September 23rd to 25th. If any of you West Coast listeners are interested in attending, I have two free tickets to give away. So if you'd like to enter to win these tickets, please leave a comment under this episode's show notes. And just to clarify, there will be one winner, so if you win, you can bring along a friend. Okay, so you got that, everyone? To enter to win the Glow Yarn Giveaway, leave a comment under the Drawing blog post. But to enter to win the tickets, leave a comment under the Show Notes blog post for Episode 56. So two different places to enter for two different giveaways. And also I should mention that the winners of the VK Live tickets will automatically be entered into a larger giveaway put on by Vogue Knitting, so that's pretty cool, too. This event sounds like a lot of fun. I hope to make it this year. I was planning on going, but I'm not sure if I'll be up to it since it's kind of late in my pregnancy. So you may see me waddling down the aisles. Not sure yet. We'll just see how it goes. So was I right or what? There was definitely a lot to talk about in this episode but we got through it. As a reminder, the show notes for this episode, as well as all episodes of Never Not Knitting, can be found on my blog at nevernotknitting.com. I'm also over on Ravelry as Never Not Knitting, and you can email me at nevernotknitting@gmail.com. at gmail.com. So that's it for today's show. Please join me back in a couple of weeks on September 1st for a brand new episode and giveaway. I'll see you then.
2: She won't even do the dishes. The house plants, they're all dead. Yeah, her needles are a clicking from morning until she goes to bed. She won't take the time to brush her teeth. Let's not even talk about her hair. If it isn't about knitting, she just doesn't really care. She's never not knitting. And it's making her husband mad. Her husband mad. Pop again. She just won't stop the stitching. And the neighbors say it really is quite sad. He has clean laundry, no pants, no shirts, no underwear. But they have closets full of sweaters, and more socks than they could ever wear. There's yard in the fridge, in the cupboards, the bathtub and pantry. Even in the washer and dryer That's why she can't do any laundry I need some clothes She's never not knitting And it's making her husband mad Her husband mad I'm filing for divorce She just won't stop her stitching And the neighbors say it's really getting bad She's taking pictures of socks again Oh, poor girl. The house is burning up in flames. 911! Her husband says, Get up, let's go! But she can't set down her project. She says, Just let me finish up this row. She's never not knitting. It's making her husband mad She just won't stop her stitching And, well, she's losing all she had